for trainers, collectives, and individuals that were looking for a program to follow that was chud-free or perhaps one that came directly from us, there is Liberation Martial Arts Online. Thanks to Michael Earl Clevenger, Balance, and Ellie for signing up. If you want to sign up for Liberation Martial Arts Online or want to increase your financial support for the Southpaw Project, you can find special tiers on our Patreon. If you'd like to listen to all of our shows without any breaks or interruptions, you can find uncut versions of our shows along with our new manga-inspired narrative series, Fighter's Brew, that include transcripts and technical martial arts breakdowns on Patreon. This is Sam. This is Jason. And this is Fight Study. This episode was sponsored by Chad Loader, Alejandro, SH, M. Shelton, Berkshire People's Gym, and New Guy. Jason and I are back to talk about UFC 283. We had the main event between the eternal Glover Teixeira versus Jamal Hill for the light heavyweight title. We also had Davison Figueredo versus Brandon Moreno again for the flyweight title. And we also had Jessica Andrade versus Lauren Murphy, which had divisional importance for both women's flyweight and strawweight. Let's start with the light heavyweight title fight where Jamal Hill won a lopsided decision. Many thought Hill would challenge for the title eventually, but were questioning if this was too quick and whether Teixeira's experience and grappling were too much, especially since Hill got easily submitted in the first round by Paul Craig, of all people, in 2021. I think what many expected was that Teixeira would take a beating then as soon as he got a hold of Hill's leg, Hill would just fall down and then get submitted. Part of this is because the wrestling above 170 is not very good in the UFC. But that wasn't the case for Hill. We know what Teixeira can do, but what did Hill show you in this fight, Jason? One thing that everyone needs to take stock of is, is Glover's heavy hands and strength, right? As well as his grappling and power. And especially given how physically strong Glover Teixeira is. When you have power in wrestling, sometimes you'll see opponents throw single shots. And that's, that's much easier to defend. You know, um, so I saw an opponent in Jamal Hill that took stock of those attributes, but still fought, fought long, put together smooth combinations, did Sort of what Gustafson did in a way, but looked less panicked doing it with better uh, positional awareness in the wrestling department. And he just had uh, great reactions and a, a smoothness. I hate the way he punches with his chin in the air all the fucking time, but his ability to find the target long and not overcommit, it was really brilliant, especially taking on Glover <laughs> Teixeira on, on, on relatively short notice. One thing that's become more and more a pattern with Teixeira is that he is extremely hittable. Do you think it's a vision problem just from fighting so long with small gloves and he can't see the strikes anymore? Or do you think he's never been defensive and what's protected him in the past was, to your point, his power? Exactly. Like I said before, when you have that rest, the wrestling chops and you're as physically strong and as heavy handed as he is, as Glover Teixeira is. Um, 
you start to see a lot more single strikes. And Teixeira, like, take nothing away from him. He keeps his hands high, keeps him in good position. He does have a little bit of head movement. But fuck, the guy's 700 years old. I mean, he's what, he's <laughs> 41 years old at this point. Um, so his reflexes, his, his reaction time is not the same. So, you know, Teixeira's always had a great chin. And the, the shots that he would eat, would allow him entry on his takedowns earlier in his career. Um, you know, same with his ability to crash distance off his overhand. But like I said before, Hill's success with smooth combinations was key, but his reactions and his ability to defend some solid entries from Teixeira is what really, really impressed me. So to your question, yes, um, you know, Teixeira's defense, uh, when, when faced with competent combination punchers, that are have an awareness of uh, distance, leverage, and timing, and the ability to sort of reset foot position, he struggles a bit, and they like to they like to try to counter brawl. And when that happens, like Glover will, will find access to your hips, and these guys usually aren't really good at at kind of recovering their hips. Jamal Hill was brilliant at it; he really was, and he he really surprised me and truly truly impressed me. And I believe Teixeira is actually 43, so he's even older than you thought. <laughs> oh, shit. My fault. 43, huh? All right. Which, you know, if you're just a regular person who likes to hit the gym, that's not old. You could be in very good shape. Now, when you're talking about fighting MMA, 43, you wouldn't be able to fight at 43 if you were in a division below 185. You could get away with it as you get heavier, but even then, at 43, Unless you're a heavyweight, you're really, really pushing it. Oh, absolutely. And, and my question is, has, has Glover Teixeira ever fought anyone outside of the top 10 in the last 10 years? <laughs> <laughs> That's true, too. Because he's always kept himself up there. Always. So you, know, you have to prepare. And he's a big guy, probably training with other big guys. And I'm sure his body has taken an absolute beating. But the, some of the things that and I don't want everyone including me talk about like his his physical strength because that's been the discussion ever since he was a training partner with um with chuck Liddell. but it is working to your strengths and developing a style a game plan and sort of like fight acumen based on on what your skill set is and i think that's why you see Teixeira continuing to fight at 43 years old. And also because 205 is a fucking terrible division, but he still has been able to do those things because he fought to his strengths. So I, I, I think that sort of old man ring craft uh, is what kept him around as long as he had, as long as he's been around. The reason why I brought up his defense, and this might be more useful information for listeners who are thinking about their own defense or how, they should approach their own training. With Glover, Glover said he's a big fan of Mike Tyson's style. And I actually don't like hearing that from fighters because Mike Tyson, I don't think, is a good fighter to replicate. Because why do they want to replicate that? They just want to replicate the results. But is his style a good style for most people? You often pose this question, right? Who would you rather have teach a class on a certain technique? Would I want Mike Tyson to teach a defensive boxing class? No. 
Do I think he's bad at defense? No, I think he had a defensive style that worked for him, but I don't think his style works for most people. And I don't think it's very replicable. Why I'm bringing this up is because Teixeira also has a peekaboo style, which you sometimes see it in MMA. And every time you see it, they're doing the side to side. So the difference between peekaboo and traditional slipping is you pivot off your back foot. You're twisting and you're just getting offline, getting your head off the line of those straight punches. The thing about the peekaboo is a similar idea of getting your head off the line, but you're side bending instead. And Mike Tyson has even said doing peekaboo for years screwed up his back. And so with Teixeira, what I've noticed is he's either doing the head movement, which is the peekaboo style, which to your point, hands high, side bending, or he's punching, but he can't do both at the same time. So often he gets hit while he's in the middle of trying to hit you. And then when you're firing at him after he gets hit a few times, he can't even peekaboo anymore because he's already like so far behind as far as trying to keep up with your volume. So he just starts doing like mummy guard, zombie guard, which I don't even know if that's something he trains or it's just like an instinct thing. But that's not even his primary defense. If you want that to be your defense, make that the thing you work on. But it seems like peekaboo is the thing he tries to work on. But it's never been, in my opinion, successful for him because he cannot do that type of side bending while he's punching. And I think you need to be able to do both. Also, the traditional style slipping feeds into your wrestling shots and so many other things that you need in MMA, whereas his peekaboo doesn't feed into anything. And I think that's part of why he's so hittable. I agree 100%. And I also think that's why he kept dipping into that left head kick. Yes. Right? He's got his hands up. He's got the binocular guard up, right? He's like looking through the binoculars, but he's not seeing anything whipping around from the outside. From that long southpaw stance, um, Hill was able to find that kick over and over and over. And let's be honest, even when Teixeira was in his heyday, when he was in his fighting prime, he still wasn't as explosive as Tyson was. And do you want a guy who's over 6'2", fighting like a guy who, ha- who has that kind of explosiveness, who is 5'10"? Oh, that's how tall Tyson was. So uh, you, you start to fight. When I talk about fighting to your strengths, it's really, really important to you know, keep, keep a... We have this hero worship. Yeah, everyone would love to fight like Mike Tyson. It's like I would love to sprint like Usain Bolt, but I'm not <laughs> built like him and I'm not fucking running like him. It's not going to happen. Exactly. And so understand what your attributes are, fight to your strengths and your fighting styles. But everything has become this twisted amalgamation of fighting for sport, fighting for, to, for marketability, fighting because you want to lick Dana's fucking boots or whatever it is these days. And I, I, just, I just don't really like it. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's always my I got to throw in a shot at fucking Dana. Right? Every time. You got it. Every time. <laughs> I actually, I want to add to your point about the kick and the peekaboo, because that's such a good point, because a lot of people want to replicate Mike Tyson, but also he never had to deal with kicks. And his is a style that would not do well against kicks. To your point, right? When you're side bending, not only are you dipping into the kick, which we've seen even Daniel Cormier against John Jones fall into that and get knocked out, but also when you're in the peekaboo stance where your guard is high, it's not just about how you lean, it's hard to block the kick with both hands, right? Your hands are in front of your face, not to the side of your face. So anything coming to the side, 
first of all, your forearm is not in a good position to block it, but also you need two hands, ideally, to block a high kick. Okay, maybe you get the first forearm up, but you need that second one to be the guiding hand so that you could smack the kick and deflect the power away so that you're not taking the brunt of the whole kick. Every time I saw Glover take the kick, he's able to like kind of get his first forearm in position, but it's like almost too late. He just gets it there, but he misses completely with his guiding hand because he's doing the peekaboo. You can't block a high kick from the peekaboo because if I'm standing orthodox and I'm blocking to my right side, my right forearm might come up, but my left hand cannot get there to deflect the kick. So that's the other problem. It's very much about straight punches coming at you or maybe protecting against body punches, but especially kicks, you're just not in a good position to block kicks. Well, and think about what also is is vulnerable was anything down the middle. And what did he get hit with a lot earlier? He got hit with knees to the body in, in uppercuts. He got hit up the middle a lot. And Tyson never had to contend with that. And again, uh, what Tyson did incredibly well was he would hit that little shift where he would step to the right with his right foot and he hit, boom, big body shot, right, uh, right hand, and then shoot that right uppercut behind it. Well, you don't have to deal with anyone clinching your head when you're getting underneath them or throwing knees up the middle or underneath. You don't have to worry about that. And it only takes a couple of those shots against big bodies in the UFC to make you think that maybe that's a fucking bad idea. So again, like you can take, I like the, the idea of taking aspects of boxing because I think boxing has taken a backseat to Muay Thai for far too long. There are aspects of it that will really improve your fight game. But trying to go about things with this sense of hero worship or putting a certain style or fighter on a pedestal and thinking you can replicate what they do just because you are a pro fighter as well is a fool's errand at fucking best, right? And it is negligent from a coaching standpoint at fucking the worst. So, you know, trying to get some of these these fighters, and again, they're they're tough and they're hard headed and they're they're stubborn, but they get you know they get they get this sort of a tunnel vision on a way that they sort of see fighting. And they think because, and I appreciate that the want to be avant-garde or to think outside the box, but if you truly have never boxed and you don't know what's in that fucking box, you have to stop and think whether or not you can figure out what's outside of it when you don't know what's in it. So that sort of thinking, I don't want to say it's, uh, you're not going to be able to really just life hack MMA. <laughs> you just can't. I like that. <laughs> right? It is a combination of skill sets and disciplines that is not specific to any one individual, any one style, any one fighter, or even any one discipline at all. I mean, it is it is this this amalgamation of of multiple skills. And you know, you have to you have to tinker with it. And you know, it would be great that I would love to see someone start just like hitting some explosive shifts and, and just ripping one uppercut to the body and then one uppercut to the head. And when you try to to square back up and exit, someone just blasts two big hooks from that peekaboo stance. But who the fuck would let someone do that without clinching them and grabbing their head and putting on <laughs> a front headlock? Like, why would you? Yeah. Why would you let that happen? You just would. So that the grappling component, the the clinch component, all that stuff, um, and the vulnerability up the middle, which I think, you know, if you watch Teixeira enough, you'll see that those vulnerabilities are there. But I mean, 
it's a risk versus reward assessment, you know, cost benefit analysis. Cause normally he grabs a hold of you and he falls on top of you and he sticks you there. But to Hill's credit, he got better at fighting and wrestling better at fighting because wrestling is an aspect of fighting. Jamal Hill improved everybody. He did. He really did. He does a lot of shit. I think is terrible. And his chin's in the air, you know, like gets a little bit too long and drags his punches down. But for, for someone who like, I didn't even have on my radar a couple of years ago, he's made some significant improvements. His ability to, to get back up from a very strong, very capable grappler, um, in Glover to share and to do it with, I mean, it was strange because like DC and Felder were talking like his athleticism is all that got him back to his feet. That's bullshit. And he had pretty good technique and he was disciplined from the bottom position and didn't give up any cheapies. He just didn't. I wanted to ask you about this because it seems like not only has he gotten better overall as far as like learning new skills, but also his in-fight adjustment ability, which is another skill, right? You get better at making adjustments in the fight. It seemed like in this fight, maybe he has been good at that for a while, but now we've seen enough of him against somebody who's top notch to see that Jamal Hill is really good at making reads and adjusting. And I think that's what allows him to get away with some of those defensive deficiencies is because he made a read so well that he could get away with that. No, I, I agree. You know, and we could talk about in-fight adjustments all day. He did a lot of subtle things that I don't know if the average fight fan is picking up on. Because I even I I try not when we have these these podcasts when we put together these episodes I try not to pay too much attention to uh, to MMA Twitter because I don't want any of that sort of permeating my brain and I don't want to parrot anyone else's information right so I just have to avoid it all. Um, but we, we can talk about the long punching in round one and then the the shifting game plan to then the kicking especially the left high kick off those long punches based on making the read of where where Teixeira's going to place his head. You know, but I'll say it again. I really liked how disciplined Hill was. He never really overcommitted when he scored with his punches and kicks. So it didn't allow, allow and this is where the mistake almost everybody makes with Teixeira. They allow his toughness and durability to, to cause you to, to overcommit and give up a cheap takedown. And when he does, that's the nail in the fucking coffin. You know? and, and, and Hill did a great job of, of landing that jab and then hitting that six inch drop step and then moving and shifting off of it with mixing and feints and causing like a 43 year old Glover to share to have to chase at times, especially after some of the longer combinations or longer exchanges from round three on, you know, to looked really, really leg weary. Now that is a combination of him being 43 years old, but there was a good bit of strategy um, uh, from, from Hill, you know, every time, what did I say? Uh, Hill's positional awareness was was actually, you know, as is his understanding of distance, leverage, and timing against someone who was a heavy puncher wrestler. And most fighters just give that way too much credit, or they give it way too much credit until they they lack that discipline, and then they give up a cheapy takedown from Glover, then he just he chokes the shit out of your submission from the top <laughs> position, right? No. But if you watch, if you watch his, if you watch Hill's hip reaction over and over when Glover beats him to his hips, you see a strong, coordinated, and appropriate wrestling spot response from Hill over and over. And it doesn't look herky jerky. It doesn't look overly urgent or panicked. It look he looks like someone who has been practicing 
that that skill, wrestling, adding it to a part of fighting, not to a part of his camp against a good wrestler. And that kind of smoothness, that kind of automatic response that you can ingrain into your, your proprioceptive and kinesthetic awareness is what you need if you want that to be there multiple times in multiple positions in whatever series or sequence of offense or defense or scramble that may befall you in a violent and chaotic endeavor like mixed martial arts. And Jamal Hill looked fucking prepared. He looked very, very well prepared. Now being on bottom, I agree with you that it wasn't just athleticism because something I really liked seeing from him, which I wish more fighters would do, especially like people who aren't like grappling aces is just to do the basics and the basics I mean by basic principles. So something I saw him do, whether it was instinctual or something like an overall philosophy somebody taught him was he kept trying to off balance both sides. So instead of just insisting on trying to like get Glover to be off balance to the left, Jamal Hill kept going left and right. If okay, if trying to get out the left didn't work, I'm going to try to get out the right. If I'm trying to off balance them to the left, if that ain't working, I'm going to the right. If that ain't working, I go back to the left. If that ain't working, maybe I'll slide backwards and try to stand up. He kept going every direction because wrestling, grappling is three-dimensional. A lot of people get tunnel vision, especially at the beginning. And they're like, okay, I'm good at the left underhook from bottom, let's say, right? And then I'm just going to insist on only ever escaping to the left. And I think more important than those individual specific techniques is just a more general idea of going both directions and going everywhere, left side, right side, back, or even forward into them, right? And so he understood that wrestling isn't two-dimensional. You're not side-scrolling here. You have to go in every different direction. And not only looking for an opportunity to escape every direction, but also if you go one way, they're going to adjust that one way. Then if they're adjusting that direction, then now you got the lead on them. So if you go the other way, maybe now you could off balance them, right? Pressure, counter pressure all day. Like that's what wrestling is. It's a push and a pushback and a response to that pushback or a fake one side. They take the far leg, they take it back. Then you shoot that, that, that a high crotch or the duck under the opposite side. Or if you get beaten to your hips and they're running you through, instead of turning and trying to run away, you get that elbow back through, turn and face and get your hips back. Those were all little things I saw. I mean, I didn't see the, the, the takedown series, but the ability, to, like you said, not to continue running away or, or over committing to one side, but the, the ability to turn back and get that elbow back through and find an underhook against the cage and then turn, turn Glover to share a, a, a guy who beats people to this, their hips all the time. And he did it to Jan Bohovic, right? Once he get, beat him to his hips against the cage, the fight was over. And th that didn't happen against Hill because Hill continued. How many times do you hear me say this? It is not defensive wrestling. It is wrestling, right? Takedown defense is an aspect of wrestling. And he got better at it to the point where in a scramble after he separated from, uh, from Teixeira on the bottom, he came and wrestled back through and beat Teixeira to his hips and took him down and stayed in the top position for the rest of the round. You know, being able to do those things will improve you as a fighter. And I think that, uh, like I said, I, I 
I will talk some shit about his chin position or his head position and some of his defensive position or excuse me, his defensive deficiencies. But in terms of physical learning curve and ability to make in-fight adjustments, Jamal Hill is really good. He's very, really, he's really, really good. So I was pleased to see it. A note to our listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, like early releases of Southpaw Deep Space Nine, our fictional narrative podcast, Fighters Brew, break-free versions of our shows without interruptions like you're hearing now, bonus articles, Fighters Brew transcripts with extra content, Liberation Martial Arts Online, as well as our private chat group on Discord. You can also make one-time donations at Ko-Fi or show your solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. You know who he reminds me of when I watch him move? Dustin Poirier. Okay, yeah, right? The reason why I say that is because when you were talking about the way he punches these long punches, he puts his whole posterior chain into those punches. Like, Dustin Poirier has like that gorilla chest where he's like really like arching his back when he punches, right? And kind of sticks his ass out. So then all of his back muscles are coming into every punch. And Jamal Hill has that same ability. He's talked about that, where he, people look at him and don't think he's strong, but he says he's really strong. And I think what he means is his back is strong, right? He looks like he's somebody who deadlifts all the time, right? So when he throws those punches, instead of the punches coming from his chest muscles and his biceps, it's like all of his posterior chain, his hips, his glutes, his triceps. When you shoot in on him, he's able to just shove you away using all of his back and get his ass away. And I was going to say this, where the, and I agree, I think your, um, your comparison is appropriate and accurate. But if you watch when Hill pushes, um, pushes Teixeira, how smooth he looks. Like he didn't have to dig super deep to push, you know, uh, a super strong Glover Teixeira away. He just sort of just, just shoved him. <laughs> and Teixeira gave ground. You know, it tells you how, how physically strong he is. Now let's talk about Davis and Figueredo versus Brandon Moreno, which ended with a doctor stoppage at the end of the third round. This time, Figueredo wasn't at fight ready. And I think that showed. So fight ready is Henry Cejudo's camp. It seemed like he was reacting rather than leading. What was Moreno doing to keep control of this fight? Oh, let me just first start by saying he looked great. Brandon Moreno looked really, really good. And I think starting off um, stringing together some wrestling off of his defense and then stringing together some wrestling later off of his offense really kept uh, you know Figgy a little bit off balance. And I, I agree with you. I think that Figgy looked better uh, at, at fight ready. Also, I mean, Figgy's, what, 35 years old, and he has a, just a, a really fucking gnarly weight cut. So I don't, But even in the first, the first minute of the fight, when they're both fresh, and that probably isn't much of a factor, it still looked like, like you said, that like Brandon seemed to sort of just have it this fight. You know, I think he's, he's a fighter that, we're going to see continue to improve. And, you know, Figgy at 35 years old is making a significant cut. I'd be, if he's going up to 135, I'd be really interested to see um, 
to see how he does there, you know, because he's, he's not a small guy for, he's a huge guy for 125 pounds. And he's got, even at 35, he's still an excellent fighter. So you're going to hear the, the commentary from individuals that say, Figgy aged out or, you know, whatever the, the Twitter sphere likes to say. But you're also looking at a 29-year-old Brandon Moreno who's really coming into his prime and he's learning how to fight. I mean, he's always been good and he's always known how to fight. But he's a fighter who's taken literally every loss and every win and made it a teachable moment, at least so far as I can tell. And that's what I think is going to separate him uh, from, from the others in the division. That leads into my next question. Does Moreno look like he's a finished product at this point or is he still improving? Uh, he's improving. You know, his, his understanding of stringing together wrestling off of his offense and his defense, it's great. And when you can do that, especially as good as his wrestling is, there's no reason to do that just later by itself as a way to just steal around. You can keep people incredibly off balance by sneaking it in. And you, your striking can make your wrestling better and your, your wrestling can make your striking better. And he's starting to understand that. You know, everyone who has some wrestling chops decides to fall in love with their punching. And I get it. You know, we want to keep it, we want to keep it entertaining. We don't want to make anything a snooze fest. But you know, with, uh, with this fight, I think it was at three minutes left in round two, it started to become clear to me that like, Brandon Moreno was going to, it was going to be his night. He was mixing together inside leg kicks jabs double jabs two right hands and we saw low leg kicks attacks that worked against him he was seeing and checking you know he read the offensive figgy encountered with excellent wrestling and smart wrestling finishes you know and if um um uh, if you watch the offense you know very closely you'll see a lot of throwaway shots and setup shots excuse me setup shots that built to bigger and better things from reno you know, so he's seeing things incredibly well with very observationally aware fighter vision and strategic acumen that is great to see from a 29-year-old fighter. And I mean, I mean that with no disrespect, not like he's a young man, but I mean, not, not like he's a kid. But, you know, Moreno showed some real maturity. And I dare say, we'll call it fucking wisdom for like a young man, not yet 30, who's fighting a guy who, like, if anyone's come close to having Brandon Moreno's number or been problematic for him. It's been Figgy. And he didn't fight him with any apprehension, nerves, rigidity. He was smooth as fucking silk in there this time. And he was ready. The one thing that I wonder about with Brandon Moreno is he still seems like he's open for straight shots, especially the jab. The reason why I'm reading that is because of the way he kind of like faints and like the way he holds his hands. I don't know if you've noticed this, Jason, but his lead hand, he like cocks it out like he's key locking himself, right? Instead of like having it right there where your hand is slightly turned in towards your center line, that lead hand is turned out away from the center line, like as if somebody was key locking him. And that's kind of how he has his lead hand, right? And Figueredo is such a good straight puncher that in their previous fight, not this one, but the one before, he was able to catch him coming in with jabs and like straight punches. Now that Figueredo has gone, I don't know who can make him pay for that, but it is just such a unusual thing, but he's so good. I don't know who can make him pay for that, but it is unusual, right? I don't know if you've noticed that just that lead hand position is just so unusual. And you know, maybe that's just this thing. Maybe you need to give him that so that he could feel like he has the freedom to play and move. 
because you've mentioned that sometimes you have to let them do some stuff that isn't necessarily correct just for them to feel good about their game. Yeah. Well, what if you took that constant short adjustment, like, or like fighter shorts adjustment tick away from, from Poye and he sucked. Like, let him do it. Right? I don't know if, if that's, if that's the case, but you know, sometimes you get guys who have a herky jerky style and you try to smooth them out and you just mess up their own internal clock, that internal rhythm, that internal metronome that they have that guides them and you, you fuck it up. And even if you start to think that, well, you moving that way all the time, they can start to time you. Well, if you don't have any internal timing of your own because you take away that movement, well, you're taking away what makes them sort of grounded as a fighter in the first place. Yeah, it's easier to read, but I guess that's something you're going to have to work with um, and game plan for rather than just try to completely reinvent them as a fighter and take away something that at least somewhat works to bind the the skills and bind them together as a fighter. <laughs> that's a good point, right? Sometimes like the weird thing is their binding agent and you take that out and the whole thing just starts falling apart. Just starts falling apart. You're like, uh, am I the worst coach ever? Like, because uh, I've tried, I tried to do it with my my, my ex wife. For one, I tried to smooth her out. And my my boxing coach, Billy Briscoe, was like, "Don't do that." I know you think it makes sense. Trust me, it doesn't. I'm like, "All right, you're right, you're right." He's like, "Let her be her." People think they're getting out of out of way of a punch that just keeps coming. So, so so let them run into it. We'll be fine. You know who that reminds me of is Travis Brown, who had a lot of things he did that was herky jerky. And it wasn't necessarily correct, but that's what bound the whole thing together. His footwork, his like speed. He was a big guy who moved like a little guy. And then he got with Ronda Rousey's coach, who was like, this guy doesn't know the basics. So he got rid of all those weird movements, right? All those binding agents. And then he came back. And yeah, like his jab looked better. As far as aesthetics, it looked better. And he fought way worse. His timing was so bad. His reactions were so bad. His ability to read or understand when he could come in and get out was so bad. When he did move back or forward, it looked better. But it was like so bad, right? It was always off. It was always too late. Like he had to think about it. So I think that's an example. Like looking better, but confusingly worse at the same time. Right? <laughs> yeah. You're like, uh, I don't know what to, I don't know what to say here. Like, and it's tough because it, it's it's so counterintuitive. You think you've made the appropriate adjustments, and you see them do the right things on pads, but you've sort of hampered them um, in terms of their own their own performance come fight time. Where and you start to see it in sparring too. Like, they just look a little bit off. And when the body's used to working a certain way, and a lot of these folks get into fighting a little bit later in life, um, you know, so like those adjustments become the end result doesn't always bear fruit like you would hope it would. Yeah. I think as coaches, you have to remember there's adjustments you can make when you're getting somebody when they're like 13, right? And you're like, okay, this is an amateur boxer. They're coming in with this, this, and this. I can improve some of those things, right? And then there's the adjustments you can make when you're getting a fighter who's coming to you at like 33. You can't do the same adjustments that you did for a 13-year-old, right? So coaching youth, combat sports, or boxing is different from coaching adult already pro fighter boxing or combat sports or MMA. So yes, it makes sense for a youth coach to make those big changes or even get rid of some of those binding agents. But there's a peril to do that when you're dealing with adults who've already been fighting like that for a long time. 
Yep, it can it can be it can be absolutely detrimental. So you look at like I said earlier, like having a fighter fight to their strengths, and can you tweak and improve subtle aspects of it? Like if you have an educated brawler, you don't have to make them this defensive wizard when they have like, especially in MMA where a good chin, great conditioning, and a little bit of power can get you pretty far. If you have them leaning back, always fighting off their back foot, um, taking away the ability to, to punch well and arrest, or excuse me, wrestle well from a defensive striking position, then you've made them better on the pads. You made them made them better for Instagram, but you you're, you might not be making them a better fucking fighter. So those considerations are very important, and sometimes they're born of the best intent, right? The best of intentions and if you did get them three or four years in a row or, or three, three or four years earlier, you may have been able to turn that corner. Or maybe you did get them when they were younger, like 20, 20, not 20, 20 to 25, and you still think you have that time, but they've just become the, their fight identity and the way that their synapses respond are so mapped and permanently etched into their fucking brain matter that no matter what you do, you can't extricate them correctly from their original style. And any attempt to do so makes them fundamentally makes them fundamentally better on the pads, but fundamentally worse when it comes time to compete. And that's something I've been thinking about a lot and talking about a lot, which is, are you trying to make an improvement to your eyes or are you trying to make an improvement overall? Just because now it looks better to your eyes for you as a spectator, does that mean it's actually more effective than before? I think even experienced coaches can get confused with that because so often what looks better for your eyes is better. And I think that's often true if you're dealing with somebody young because you have the time to now make what looks better for your eyes something they could eventually internalize. And now eventually their feel is better than your eyes, right? But if you're dealing with somebody who's much older, trying to improve something where it just looks better to you, is always going to rely on your eyes to tell that fighter if what they're doing is right because they can't feel it because they don't even have enough time as a pro to ever develop that feel. Then if they're always dependent on your eyes, then they're always behind. They're always delayed. Absolutely. And the more that they have to think about it, the less automated, the less automatic they are, the more they have to think, the more can go wrong during times of chaos, times of duress, and especially times of like advanced onset, uh, the advanced onset of fatigue. So like this decision-making should be sort of like intuitive or innate or automatic when like you have to, to think and react in, in a less than programmatic way. You become a little bit too rigid, too delayed. And if it's not a bad natural movement, it's probably better than a well-thought, delayed reaction to someone trying to rip your fucking head off. You know, I'm not sure if that makes makes any sense, but I think that's a great segue to to Jessica Andras and some of the points I was going to make about her. You can make little improvements, right? Without and it's like my my boxing coach Billy Briscoe used to tell me, quit driving with the brakes on, Jason. And to be fair, it didn't to be fair, he said that to everyone, but for me it was because I was like a wrestler. I was pretty like pretty muscled up at the time. And I, I, you know, I was always a pretty good puncher, but you know, because I've been I've been boxing since I was twelve on and off, uh, but like, I was too stiff in the shoulders. And he wanted me to loosen up. 
Now, you watch Jessica Andras, especially when she was carrying a little more muscle, and she's, she's still carrying plenty of it, but she was driving with the brakes on a little bit. She was a little stiff. She's a little bit rigid. So instead of teaching her how to take a nice boxing stance and get real bladed, and they just loosened her up a little bit. She was doing the same thing, just with a little bit more fluidity, still throwing like triple hooks, like hook, 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 you know, but she was just loose enough in the shoulders. And that kind of improvement can really pay off. And, you know, you're seeing an improvement without seeing like a huge change in what she's doing. With that lack of rigidity, she's able to go from punches to kicks a lot easier. Um, and with sort of less physical resistance of her own body getting in the way, she no longer is driving the brakes on. So let's give a little bit of background on this fight. It was a one-sided decision victory over Lauren Murphy. The main event was also one-sided, but Teixeira had his moments and had chances where you thought he's going to win this fight, whereas Murphy had no moments. And that's why I wanted to talk about this fight over some of the other fights we could have talked about, because to your point, Andrade is really a strawweight and Murphy is a big flyweight. Murphy was also on a run until she lost to champion Valentina Shevchenko. Then she beat Misha Tate. She's looked good. She's physical and she's a tough out for anyone. Andrade is also known as more of a wrestler who hits hard. Maybe to your point, right? About that rigidity. But in this fight, she's shown how much she's grown as a striker. What I noticed was how better she was at closing the distance on taller fighters. And in this fight, she really solidified herself as one of the pound-for-pound best in all of women's MMA. And Murphy kind of had Andrade's old problem where she looked very stiff and even stiffer than in her previous fights. Jason, can you speak a little bit more about Jessica Andrade? Because She's clearly no longer just someone who's strong. She's also, at least to me, looks like she's able to make reads in the fight and now is becoming a clever fighter. I think that's an excellent point. And and going back to what we spoke on earlier is that fluidity allows you to move and make, like when when you're already athletic, when you already have a strong understanding of fighting and that sort of rigidity isn't getting in your way. It allows you to have more than one dance move. You know, you can do multiple things. You're not just doing the same fucking step over and over and over again because you, like, your hip doesn't move the other way. Like doing doing the floss only to one side impresses nobody, right? You better <laughs> get to go on both sides. Uh, but she's become so much more fluid. But in in all honesty, she can even stand to loosen up a little bit more. But her decision making is because her body's in better position to do the things that she can do. She can throw an inside leg kick to a nice right hand and then go hook, hook, hook off it and then duck out and throw a right hand. And if you try to fade out to that side, she'll throw a left kick to your body. Or if you try to, to, to square up with your elbows wide, like you're driving a fucking 1930s bus, she'll kick you up the middle. You know, and that's that hand position from Lauren Murphy that she exploited over and over. You know, but I'll say it again, as much as she's improved, Um, She has the ability um, to improve more. And I think we will continue to see that as she gains confidence after this performance. I would be surprised to see her striking be even better the next time out against, and today nothing away from Murphy, but even against a higher caliber opponent. If you love the Southpaw Project, become one of our financial supporters. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week, 
and you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. We can't exist without your contributions. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at southpawpod.com. And in speaking of Murphy, do you think this was always a bad style matchup for her? Or did you see some things Murphy could have done to make this fight more competitive? Well, I mean, Murphy's strong, right? And she, there's a saying, like she's tougher than a, a dollar store beef jerky or something, or t- tougher than a $2 steak or something like that. I fucking forget, <laughs> whatever. You actually don't want to be tough in a fight, right? Because that's when you're like getting your ass kicked. And people that's are like, exactly. oh yeah, she's tough. Yeah, when you talk about how durable a fighter is, like when that's because they're getting punched in the face a hundred times around, that's a that's a problem. You know, I'll go and I'll say it again. Her hand position looks like she's driving a bus or an oversized steering wheel or the like captaining a, sh- a captaining a ship from the eighteen hundreds. You know, her elbows are real far out, and you know, and I don't mean to say that to 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 talk shit on her, but at, also at thirty nine years old, this wasn't going to be a very competitive fight anyway. You know, I almost. I almost felt like they were punishing Murphy for beating up Misha Tate. It seemed like a, a bad matchup for her for her from the jump. And why no one thought about stopping the fight is crazy. But and then we can talk about that for the t- to share a fight. It just seemed like they were fine with when for multiple rounds you talk about how tough a fighter is. That means they're getting their head beat in, and like it's going to come a point where we're gonna, where like I'll have seen enough of it. You have seen enough of it, but the fucking doctors wouldn't have, and neither will the. The fans are Dana White until someone fucking dies, until everyone's eating out of a straw for the next 30 years when we see the fallout from this fuckery. Uh, what, um, again, I digress. We'll go back to my fault. Um, but uh, again, Murphy is strong. She is durable. I thought that she would try to be a little bit more aggressive coming forward. But at 39 years old, she was too slow, and this wasn't ever going to be a very competitive fight. Now, let's analyze that a little bit more because, yes, it was a bad style matchup to begin with. But sometimes people who are watching the fight might hear the commentators say something like so-and-so is not getting in the fight or Andrade is not letting Murphy get into the fight or she's a step behind. And what exactly does that mean when you're not ever getting into the fight, right? Because we've seen her before. We've seen her lose before. But like, she looks better than this, right? So she's even fighting beneath herself. It was always a bad style matchup. And in round one, when it started, she was her real self. And then as the fight went on, she looked worse and worse. And a lot of that is, yes, Andrade is making her look worse. But what is happening for you to look worse? So to give you a more concrete example, right? In the first round, she throws a jab. She throws a straight. And it's not like, the best you've seen, but they look okay. And then those same jab and straight in rounds three, rounds two, they don't look as good at all. They look like shit. So her form is falling apart. Is part of good technique being able to get a read and having some kind of timing. And when you don't have that anymore, your own form just starts to fall apart and your defense starts to fall apart. Wait, the word, the, the appropriate word that you used was timing right? She couldn't get her timing down. And with no timing, you have no rhythm. Going back to the binding agent thing, right? Absolutely. Right. So when I'm pretty sure that, that Murphy's camp was banking or not, even if they weren't, they weren't banking on, I think they, they may have hoped that Andrade 
would be a bully, a physical bully and not an educated fighter. And that's not what they got. They got a, a physically capable, educated fighter in Jessica Andrash, and she brought it. And so those inside leg kicks that going downstairs and upstairs and that little up the middle jump kick or whatever that whatever whatever that's called, the Taekwondo kick that Felder referred to. Like that you talk about not a, not being able to get your timing. I mean, you can't meet that kind of force head on. Because, again, you have a fighter who's capable of making 115 pounds, right? And Lauren Murphy is not a a weak person. She's a very strong human being. She's very strong. And I think if if Andras fought unintelligently, it could have been a three-round against the cage. You punch me a little bit. I turn the position. I punch you. And then we'd have been like, ah, it was a competitive fight. Taking turns, taking each other down. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or if Andrade hits a nice takedown because she's physically strong against, and, and then Murphy just hits like a nice sweep and into a single leg and then gets the top position. And even though the, the wrestling or the grappling was initiated and, and the, uh, Andrade was getting the better of it, Murphy gets in the top position. All that shit could have taken place if, if Andrade didn't come with like really polished and improved striking and i know she's shown it before but i'm just saying if you watch if you watch the improvements in fundamental body position punching into kicks and kicking into punches and not punching yourself out of position very seldom do i ever reward anyone who throws four hooks in a row with like um fight acumen or fight iq but she did because she she did she scored with them because she kept uh, a very physically strong opponent off balance and out of sorts because she couldn't a- adjust and find her timing and rhythm. Round one, right? We talked about how Murphy is still a rigid fighter, but round one, she looked like her normal kind of like tension in her shoulders self. By round two and three, she was so tense. Her shoulders were like by her ears and something that she normally doesn't do that she started doing in the later rounds in this fight is she was so tense. She started not rolling with the punches, just turning away from the punches and closing her eyes. So that's when you're not feeling yourself. That's when you have no timing. That's when you have no idea what's coming. So it's like a car wreck. You just close your eyes and brace because she can't get to your point, any of her timing, any of her reads for the listeners. I wanted to break down what that means when you don't let a fighter into the fight. It's not just about beating them up, like beating them up and they could still be in the fight. Like Teixeira was still in the fight. He still had his moments, right? He could have won. Whereas Murphy, it wasn't just getting beat up. It was the total confusion because we've talked about she's tough. She could take shots. She could take shots and be competitive and keep coming forward like a zombie if she needs to. What was the problem was she had no idea if she was going to get kicked in the leg, punched the stomach punch to the face, get like a switch kick. You know, she didn't know if she was going to get hit to the left side, the right side. She didn't know if Andrade was going to angle off of her. She didn't know if Andrade was going to take her down. And that's why she was so stiff. Because even tough fighters can look scared of the unknown, right? If they know what's coming, they're like, okay, I could brace for this, right? Even tough fighters will look like that when faced with the unknown. And I think that's what you want to do. It's not just about beating the shit out of them. It's about confusing them. 
Oh, yeah. Right. When everyone was headhunting and the calf kick became popular because kicking too high in the thigh made you a little bit too vulnerable for a takedown. All of a sudden, people were afraid to throw a fucking jab. You, know? <laughs> like, you can take the, take certain things away if you have being a, a being a comprehensive having a comprehensive approach to fighting and being a well-rounded fighter is important because you can start to make decisions based on what's available and when you make decisions on what's available they can your opponent reacts to that and when they try to take it away i promise you something new is available right and if you say i'm not a kicker well then you don't get it to kick when it's available and they'll still be defending your punches and then that's all they have to look at you have a better chance of keeping individuals off balance if and I'll say this, if Felder had a strong offensive wrestling game, he'd probably be world champ, right? He could, he could probably, his, he's so durable and his conditioning is so good, right? Uh, that he could fight just about anybody to a fucking split decision. He, he's that good. Like every fight he ever has with any great striker is going to be really, really close because he's durable and his conditioning is just off the charts and he's really, really strong. Now, if he had one offensive takedown, Every other round, he'd probably like at, at least have positioned himself to fight for one world title. Lacked a little bit of that well-roundedness, keeping people off balance, demanding that the judges not even consider a fucking split decision. Why? Because you spent three minutes in that second round on that, on top of that motherfucker, and you didn't give him a chance, right? So, you know, can you be diverse enough to disrupt their rhythm? Or is everything going to be a coin flip round because you both are doing just enough and it can look beautiful, but because no one's ever truly off balance, it looks very competitive because no one's ever fully off rhythm. It looks competitive because no one's timing's ever been exploited because it's you go, I go, you go, you I go. It's a tit for tat. You know what's a typical UFC close fight is when both fighters are headhunting and that's all they're doing, right? Then the judges have a hard time. Because they're like, okay, you both were just punching the shit out of each other's heads. Who do I give it to? And then the fans will always say, it's whoever's like more damage. Well, some people cut worse than others. Other like, what if it just doesn't hurt them? Like, what if they they get cut easily, but it doesn't hurt them? I mean, how are you fucking scoring that? It becomes subjective at that point. But yeah, you're right. Like those are the fights where it's always argued. Ah, uh, it's bullshit. So and so won. And people talk about the the Felder versus Edson Barboza second fight. Ah, it's bullshit. Hey man, like neither one of them did enough to really. Like, I, mean, I think Barboza actually shot for a takedown, which was why most people thought he got robbed in the second fight. I think he got a takedown in the third. So being able to have greater diversity means like your striking can set up your wrestling. Your wrestling can set up your striking. It both can make those things better. Your ability to punch and to kick, and that's one thing Hill did really well. He was touching. Teixeira so many times with long strikes and then when Teixeira would just get slightly out of the way but break position or whenever he didn't get out of the way he just sort of parried and ate a shot off that shot uh, Hill would just throw that left head kick and fucking land it so you know diversity and having more tools at your disposal while they're protecting one you can hit him with another. And that's why like good wrestler, dirty Muay Thai motherfuckers are so hard to contend with against the cage because you pull them up from the wizard, from their takedown. And when you pull them up, they just give you a little bit of space and they knee in the fucking ribs. And then when you b- bump down and you try to protect your ribs, they start to 
jump for a, a front headlock. And whenever you posture out of that, they knee in the ribs again and the knee in the legs and they're circling back down to a single leg. They take what's available. And, you know, when we talk about binders, like the best binding agent is great conditioning. Everything else sticks together because you are not falling apart. It's essential. It's crucial. You know, and you get th- these grizzled motherfuckers who are well-conditioned and well-trained, and then you get those those folks that will probably vie for a world title at some point or at least be one of the, the top contenders. And, and you're looking at individuals that um, are also very, very teachable from like a coaching perspective. You can show their fights and tell – you can educate your athlete on why what they're doing is working. And that's the shit I love to see. That's what really winds my clock as a coach. You know, and I wish I could go back in time and see fights again as a fan. Those, those days are gone for me. I actually hate fighting as a fan. I mean, it means nothing to me. It's the most <laughs> irrelevant thing I've ever watched. I'm sorry. I started to say it, just, it does nothing for me. But watching it as a coach and seeing like brilliant scrambles or just nuanced technique and or just talking fights with, with you and Dan, Tom, and everybody else, like, those people that see things that I haven't seen, that's what really feeds my brain. That's my brain candy. That's the shit I love. And you're going to start to see those folks, like the, the younger guard, the younger guard, right? The, the Brandon Moreno's at 29 who are mixing shit together. They're the ones who are going to improve. The physical phenoms, like the, 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 the juggernaut that was Jessica Andrade for years, making subtle improvements. Those things, noticing them, quantifying them, understanding them, being able to replicate them. That's what's going to change the sport. That's what's going to make, uh, you know, really bring out the true beauty and poetry of what is a violent and chaotic endeavor. And if you can't finish an opponent, you have to win rounds and being more diverse in your attacks also makes a better case because if it's like, okay, you're both even and punching each other to the face and then one person is like doing other stuff, you're like, as a judge, right? You will notice like the different stuff you're doing. Here's the same shit. Oh, here's some other stuff that are not the same. Okay, that stands out in my memory. So when you're being more diverse in your attacks, you're also making a better case to win the round. Yeah, that that kind of body language is huge. It's something that is is tangible. It's something that is easily quantifiable for, like you said, for what is breaking the pattern. So when we're watching things, we're all human. Judges are human. Uh, sometimes we don't give them that credit when they're, they're, they make such piss poor decisions, but the, um, the ability to sort of get like locked into the pattern of a sequence. And when you see breaks in those patterns, especially like that's why knees are so great. You know, they're very, very easy to see, you know, even if they don't land hard, even if they don't land well, number one, their knees, they almost always hurt a little bit. But it's easy for a judge to see what what you're doing. The problem is that some of these judges don't score a lot of body work, as you and I have discussed in the past. Um, And Dan Thomas brought up on multiple occasions. Um, But at least doing something when it looks like nothing's going on against the cage is easier to sort of quantify than than little slap punch here, little slap punch there, or even great punch, bang, bang, big, then back and forth like fucking ping pong. That's tough to figure out who's doing more there because both are doing a little bit of something. So you have to make a case that you did something, not even extra, that you did something different when it's close and that could even sway judges. So I think all of those are good reasons to why you should be more diverse in your attack. And 
how we even started talking about this is because Andrage was very diverse and Lauren Murphy ultimately was not. No, she wasn't. Not at all. Not at all. And we can give we can give credit to Andrage for for breaking her rhythm and disrupting her timing right off the bat. Um, or you can say that like Andrage at 31, right? That's how old Andrage is. I believe Andrage is 31. And at 39 years old, well, there's not a whole lot of, I don't think there's um, a next chapter for the evolution of Lauren Murphy. I think what you see is what you get here. So Andrade is continuing to improve and evolve. She's also training now at UFCPI, and that's part of why she looks so good physically in this fight, and she had an easy weight cut. It was because she's basically just eating whatever the UFCPI is feeding her. And I think that's why she went there. She didn't want to make dieting and weight cutting such a huge part of her camp and just work on her skills. So that's why she moved her whole camp over. I think it's not like she changed her team. I think her whole team came with her to UFC PI and let the PI take care of her rehab, her strength and conditioning, her meal planning and all that. And I think that's part of also why she came in in such good shape because her conditioning and her weight was so good. And that's why I think she even called out Wiley Zhang for 115 because she feels like, okay, with this type of camp where I'm doing it at UFC PI, I can make 115 because they'll just feed me. I just eat whatever they tell me to eat. That is really sound thinking. It's the reason why I have eight dress shirts, all from the same fucking company, all the same size, different colors. It's one less thing I have to think about when I go to my nine to five from now on. Right? I don't got to think about shit. When you don't have to think about your meal prep, when you don't have to think about your nu- nutrition, when it's already, when you, all your macros and, and all your micros are already pre-programmed for you, it's just a matter of eating and staying fueled. It is one less thing to worry about. And with as many skills that are involved in mixed martial arts, just as arduous a task as training for a professional fight in mixed martial arts is, I think it's a sound, sound decision to, as much as I hate the UFC monopolizing everything, I think from a fighter perspective, especially someone who who could be a world champion like Jessica Andrade, I think it's inspired thinking. All right, Jason, I think that's it. I think that's all we have on the docket to cover. If you like this episode and you like what we do, support us on Patreon. We also have the Liberation Martial Arts Program if you want to train with us from wherever you are. There's lots of techniques, exercises, theory, pedagogy, and even political theory. We also have Fighters Brew, which is a manga-inspired martial arts audio series with transcripts that include martial arts tutorials. You can find Liberation Martial Arts online along with Fighters Brew on Patreon. You can find Southpaw merch at our store. You can find all pertinent links on the show notes. With all that said, thank you, Jason, for your insight as always. Thank you all for listening. Always a pleasure.